Our talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. Douglas Maurice and Stephen Means in separate rooms in different places, but still doing this podcast. Sorry it's getting uh, to you guys late. Um, but, you know, we're really kind of actually hitting the offseason here. So there's not as much going on, although there is stuff going on with the basketball team. So Stephen is on the phone. I am here, and we are going to do this probably not as long as usual. Um, but we want to make sure you guys get your regular dose of Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. So um, we're going to start with your questions, and we're going to start with the news um, that Stephen put up in a story on Wednesday. Uh, the official 10-man coaching staff announced by Ryan Day. No surprises. It's the five new guys we knew about. We knew Larry Johnson and Brian Hartline were sticking around. Uh, the official announcement that Kevin Wilson and uh, Greg Studrawa and Tony Alford are also sticking around. So this is Nathan Freilich's question about that, Stephen, at N underscore Frey23. New staff. Ryan Day not as good as Urban. But is Ryan Day plus the staff better than or equal to Urban Meyer plus the staff? So I think that's definitely a question about the defensive staff last year headed by Greg Schiano. When you think about what this overall 10-man assistant coaching staff plus the head coach is going to be, do you think it's possible, Stephen, that this staff, even though you're going from a legend as head coach to a first-time head coach, could the overall 11 people when you add in the assistants, actually make a better staff than what we saw last year? Yeah, I think so. I think last year's staff had the, let's just, if they were a roster of like a team of some sort, you know, let's just compare one team to another team. I think the 2018 roster had the best player. They had the LeBron James type guy where that's the best player in the game. But then this roster may have a better two-through not literally two through ten. I think this roster is a better, better roster. So coaching staff purposes, I think at the top, yes, the best, the head coach of 2018 was a better coach than the 2019 coach, mainly because one of them is proven and the other one is is just not proven. So you got one of the ten greatest coaches of all time against a guy who hasn't really proven anything. So of course that goes to 2018. But everything else, I think this may be a better roster. They bring back the guys who were the best parts of the 2018 roster, mainly Larry, um, I'm sorry, yeah, Larry Johnson, the defensive end coach. And they promoted him to associate head coach. They bring back Brian Hartline, who was the guy in charge of a record-breaking wide receiver core, and they gave him the job full four out. And we'll see what he can do this year now that you've lost three of those guys. I think all in all, this is a you bring in a, a passing game coordinator who literally everywhere he's gone, he's been a record breaking type of guy. So I think mm, two through ten, I think twenty nineteen has the advantage as far as coaching staff. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people were really excited when Greg Schiano got here to Ohio State, and the idea that Urban Meyer had Kevin Wilson on the offensive side of the ball, who was a former head coach. Greg Schiano on the defensive side of the ball, who was a former head coach. Um, Greg Schiano really lost his luster um, last season with the way that defense played. Um, I think Greg Schiano probably is a better defensive coach than what he showed last year. Um, I think he could have used... I think what, what happened with the defensive staff last year was... You put Greg Schiano totally in charge, took him out of a position room, made him the boss. Um, there was probably some discomfort with Alex Grinch because that was a high-profile guy they brought in. I think maybe that defensive staff didn't work well as a group. I think maybe people weren't able to get to Greg Schiano and say, you know what, I'm not sure this is working. You know, Everybody talks about collaboration. I don't know how good the collaboration was last year. and We know Bill Davis wasn't very good at linebacker. Um, We'll have to, like, everybody loved Alex Grinch, man. Like, Stephen, you weren't on the beat yet, but when Alex Grinch got here from Washington State, people were going nuts. And so, like, I know Jeff Halfley's good. I'll tell you, people were were more excited about Alex Grinch than they were Jeff Halfley. I know that Greg Madison has a great reputation. Um, I, I, I still think, you know, part of this question from Nathan Freilich is interesting is comparing this staff to last year's staff. One of the other points is last year's staff was clearly not Urban Meyer's best staff. 
without Luke Fickle, without Kerry Combs, it was clearly not his best staff. So you're not only comparing Ryan Day and this staff to last year, you're, you're comparing Ryan Day and this staff to the best of the Urban Meyer era. Um, when you had Chris Ash at defensive coordinator, when you had Tom Herman at offensive coordinator. So I don't think fans only want to compare it to last year because I think coaching-wise that wasn't one of their best years. Um, so we'll, you know, there's going to be more coaching questions that we'll get into, but, but I want to spin it off this way, Stephen, and ask the idea that the offensive staff is, is Mike Yersich in Ryan Day's spot and everybody else the same. Stradrawa's back, Alford's back, Wilson's back, Hartline's back. Did that surprise you, or given the way the offense performed last year with a record-breaking, high-flying offense, does that make sense to you that basically Ryan Day wiped out the defense and kept the offense when it came to coaching? I think so, yeah. One, because Ryan Day was an offensive guy, and he'll still have a heavy influence on the offense. I'm pretty sure he'll call a lot of the plays still, and yeah, that was a record-breaking offense. Yes, you had an NFL-level quarterback that Ohio State has never seen before, but it was still a record-breaking offense. And so I think with the offense, it turned into a, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. So find a guy to replace you who has the same type of mindset as you and you feel like can accomplish some of the things you accomplished but take it a step further, especially now they've got another guy who will probably be an NFL prospect when his time comes at the quarterback position. Well, at the defense, we said it all year, the 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 weakest part of Ohio State's entire roster was the defensive side of the ball. So, of course, there needs to be there needed to be changes on the defensive side of the ball when it came to the coaching staff. With the offensive side, it's, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You just broke a whole bunch of records. Let's see if you can do it again. Yeah, I, I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I, I think I'm a little surprised. I thought Greg Stradawa may not be back, I, and I think part of this it's it's almost um, good luck for Ryan Day. It's not only coincidental. Ryan Day was a really good offensive coordinator. So the reason the offense in large part was good was because of him. But my point is he f- he got rid of the guys he didn't know as well because he didn't work with the defensive coaches every day. And he kept all the guys that he did work with every day. So that was a little bit easier to do. It would have been really interesting if like Ryan Day was coming off a year where the offense stunk and the defense was great. What would he have done? Um I do think there's some recruiting needs that need to be addressed. We'll see how we'll see how Jeff Halfley recruits. Greg Madison has a good recruiting reputation. I think Al Washington has a good recruiting reputation. I think Brian Hartline is making his bones as a recruiter. Larry Johnson's a great recruiter. Um, I think Greg Stradrawa necessarily hasn't been a great recruiter. They've had some holes. They have some number crunching. They have a lack of numbers on the offensive line on this roster that I think they need to address. I thought Tony Alford coming back I thought was a no-brainer. I think Tony Alford's been really good coaching the running backs and recruiting the running backs. Kevin Wilson, I thought, could have gone either way. Um, so I guess I guess I get it, obviously. I mean, you look at the stats. I'm very curious, though, Stephen. Like, Dwayne Haskins had a lot to do with all those offensive coaches looking smart last year. And Dwayne Haskins isn't back. And Paris Campbell and Johnny Dixon and Terry McLaurin at receiver aren't back. So I do think this is going to be an interesting test um, for this offensive staff. Yeah, and I also think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the offense, the coaching staff, obviously, to see if they can do anything near that. Obviously, Justin Fields isn't Dwayne Haskins. But it also puts pressure on those players who are stepping into those roles. It's a big deal that Justin Fields shows come here. We made a big deal out of that. That is a big deal that he's here. So now he's stepping into a shoes that Dwayne Haskins stepped into and he broke records. Let's, Justin Fields has to do something close to that and I think the coaching that's part of the reason why I think he brought the entire coaching staff back is when you've done what you've just done and you're getting a brand new quarterback you we're going to find out how much of that was Dwayne Haskins and how much of that was the coaching staff itself I'm going to reference this one more time before we move on to the next question this is your coaching staff comparison and it's, it's not necessarily fair but I'm saying this is what you're shooting for okay 2014 Ohio State. Tom Herman was the offensive coordinator. Great. Stan Drayton was a running backs coach. Good. Tim Hinton was a tight ends coach. Zach Smith was a receivers coach. We all know the deal with Zach Smith. Ed Warner was the offensive line coach. Really good. Defensive staff. Larry Johnson, Kerry Combs, Chris Ash, Luke Fickle. That is a great defensive staff. So they had fallen off since then. From that staff, you know, they lost Tom Herman, but they turned him into Ryan Day. They lost Stan Drayton and turned him in. 
um, to Tony Alford. So you still were pretty good there. Ed Warner to Greg Stoudrawa, you're taking a step down. Luke Fickle, they took a step down. Chris Ash, they took a step down. Kerry Combs, they took a step down. So let's remember the best of the uh, of the Urban Meyer staffs and see how they compare to that. Not that if, if Ryan Day's staff in 2019 isn't as good as that 2014 staff, not that that would be somehow a failure, but just as a reminder for Ohio State fans how good of a coaching staff they had just a short time ago. And I think we can look back now, and you can look at that 2014 National Championship team, and we know all the guys they sent on to the NFL, and we know the number one reason that they won the National Championship that year was Ezekiel Elliott and Joey Bosa and Vaughn Bell and Darren Lee and Taylor Decker and all these NFL guys. But I also think we can look back and realize that was a tremendous coaching staff from top to almost the very bottom nine assistants and a head coach that's the threshold that you're looking for I don't expect Ryan Day and his staff to get there in year one but I think it's a reminder for Ohio State fans that's what this Ohio State staff can be this is a similar question and I think it's really interesting Stephen John Myers at JT Myers 28 what is the risk that Ryan Day cuts corners to win fast like Urban did at Florida I think Urban, we know Urban Meyer did that at Florida. You bring in some kids who were greater risks because you have to win. I think Jim Trestle did it in the early years at Ohio State. You bring in some guys who were risks because you have to win. Once you get established, once you're comfortable, you start to be able to pick players, not recruit players. You have so many guys who want to come play with you. You don't have to worry about taking guys who might be problems. But given that there's some continuity here, given that they're keeping a lot of the Urban Meyer stuff intact, on the other hand, Ryan Day's never been a full-time head coach before. Do you think there is any risk that Ryan Day will take some risks on some guys um, to try to win because he feels like he has to win? I think so, yeah. But, but I think which is part of the reason why he, he made it an emphasis to say that there's some things that Urban Meyer did that we're going to continue to do here, which is I think there's a comfort level in you know, you're not Urban Meyer, but if you're kind of if you were under Urban Meyer and you're doing some of the things that Urban Meyer was doing, it's it's easier to relate that to recruits. But also, I don't know if he's going to necessarily like cut corners, but I do think he's going to use some things that Urban Meyer didn't use in his time as Ohio State coach. So he never, I don't, that, to my knowledge, I don't think he ever used the transfer portal for a position this major on in, in his first year, like his first year on the job and he's using the transfer portal for his most important position on the field and I think you know, I don't know if that's something Urban Meyer would have done year one so I think that's it's more of that I think he's going to use some things that I don't think Urban Meyer or any other coaches would have used within two weeks after he got the job pretty much I think we need to be realistic here I think um Ryan Day has a reputation among quarterbacks, among people out there who are interested in having their young quarterback succeed. That's going to help him. He's going to be helped by Mark Pantone and Mickey Marotti and the guys who were around in the Urban Meyer era. He's going to be helped by the recent success of Ohio State. One thing that's a little different is a lot of these other coaches, often when a new coach comes in, they're coming into a bad situation because somebody got fired. That's what happened more often than not. When Urban Meyer got to Florida, Ron Zook Zuck had recruited well, but he hadn't gotten it done. When Jim Trestle got to Ohio State, John Cooper had recruited well, but he hadn't gotten it done. Um, so you need more of, of a shot in the arm. Ohio State doesn't need a shot in the arm right now. Ohio State has been good, was good this year, and they expect will continue to be good. But I think we need to be realistic, and this is not – This is not. Uh, I'm not saying anything negative about Ryan Day. I think you just have to be realistic and understand that he may have to do that. I think Ohio State in recent years – had been able to to really almost stop taking any kid with any kind of red flag. And I think um, lots of schools take some of those kids. A lot of those kids deserve shots, right? That, you know, you shouldn't turn a back on a guy just because he made one mistake. But I think they were able to kind of move away from guys who had great issues, move away from guys who had maybe had possible off-field issues, move away from guys that had parents they thought that might be an issue because they could just replace them or get another four or five star instead who didn't have those same issues. I just think it's natural with the new coach, if you're not getting quite as many talented guys as, as, as you're used to getting because you're not Urban Meyer, you haven't established yourself that way, I think you have to be ready maybe – I don't know if it's going to happen for sure, but I have. To, I think you have to open your mind to the idea of Ryan Day may 
take some risks on guys with grade issues, guys with maybe some off-field stuff that are question marks, not red flags. I don't think he'll do that, but question marks? I think it's possible some guys like that could come in here just because we've seen so many other coaches early in their tenures. You've got to take some risks to get established, and once you're established, you can pick and choose a little bit more with your guys. Um, We're going to move off some of that theoretical stuff and into some specifics with Cynical Negro at NW Drone 410. Do you think the team using DeMario McCall much more um, on offense around the Maryland game shows they have plans on actually using him or has his time come and gone? I'll let you open on this, Stephen, because I just shout DeMario into Twitter every time he catches the ball. Do you have a real belief that DeMario McCall – um, is going to have a real role, an actual important 60-minute-a-game role on this offense this season? I don't know. If, like, well, 60 minutes, I don't think that that's the case, but I think he'll have the role as the, you said it a lot of times, the third down back or, you know, the guy who comes in every so often for J.K. Dobbins. JK, I don't think they're going to – if he's going to end up being a running back, they're not going to use, to play that the same way they did this past season where – you know, Weber and Dobbins pretty much just like interchanged every series. They're not going to see McCall and Dobbins interchange every series. I think this is that's going to be Dobbins one hundred percent, and he's going to get if he's going to get eighty five to ninety five percent of the touches as far as carries, and then Demario McCall will come in on third downs, being a receiving back and that sort of things. But yeah, I think he does have a role on this team. I just don't think because of the way it worked out this past season where that running game really kind of struggled at some point because it, I think and I think a large part of it was because they did go back and forth and didn't really let one catch a rhythm. I think they're not going to do that again this next year. So, yeah, they'll have a role, but it won't be the uh, the Mike Weber role where you know he's going to get 50% of the series a game. Right, where are you on – what is your DeMario meter, by the way? Like I just think DeMario is a guy that has like great potential – and hasn't been able to show it, but if you give him the ball in space and use him the right way, he could be a really effective player and make big plays. Where, where are you on DeMario? Yeah, I feel like you see him more of an H-back than a running back. I think I think he's a playmaker. If I can compare him to any running back from, it'd probably be Wilson, where he wasn't the start, where um, DeAndre Wilson wasn't the starting running back. But you know, he got touches and he got chances to make plays. So maybe that role or maybe a Paris Campbell role where Paris Campbell got a lot of those shovel passes that kind of went for touchdowns. I'm not saying he's anywhere near as fast as Paris Campbell is. But maybe you use him to that capacity and that's where you see him show you know, his ability. I'm, if you're like, I feel like you're like a 9 or a 10. I'm more of a 6 or 7 on tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, I'm maybe irrationally a 9 or a 10. And I understand that. I understand that. I'll, I'll, I'll embrace that. I know who I am. Um, Which is partially because you talked to him after the Big Ten Championship, and he just gave you so many quotable moments that like, I feel like it helps your case on why your team, DeMario McCall. Yeah, well, and he's getting all of it now. Now that Tate's gone, DeMario's getting oh, yeah. all my love. He's a new Tate for Marcel for you. I don't have to split it anymore. It's all focused on DeMario. Um, all right, this is a really good question. From Zach Kaminsky at Kaminsky underscore Zach. The offensive line, while young, is as talented as any that Ohio State has seen in the past decade. May make some mistakes early in the season, but do you see a few all-conference, all-American candidates? And so I want to refresh that for people. Um, We know Thayer Munford, who is not a hugely recruited guy, uh, was not a five-star guy, but he's going to be back as a starting left tackle. And then we know that everywhere else, um, is is basically kind of up for grabs because we knew they were losing Demetrius Knox and Malcolm Pridgen and Isaiah Prince, and then Michael Jordan also went pro. So I just want to reset for the people who don't memorize recruiting rankings or have them in their wallet what we're talking about with some of these young linemen. Nicholas Petit-Frere, who will be in the battle to start at right tackle, in the class of 2018 was the number seven overall player in the country he is a five-star. He's in that mix. Uh, Matthew Jones. No. Wait. Yeah, Matthew Jones. He's one of them. Matthew Jones, who came as a center, I think could be in the mix at center, could be in the mix at guard. He's a four-star. He was the number 68 overall player in the class of 2018. And Max Ray uh, was the number 121 overall player in the class of 2018. So we have three guys on the offensive line in 2018 
who are in the top 121. And then let's remind people about this. You have Wyatt Davis, who it will be a shock if he doesn't start. He took over because of injuries late in the year. He was the number 24 overall player in the class of 2017. He's a five-star. And Josh Myers, the guy that Ryan Day and Greg Studarwa have indicated is the, the absolute leader to be the starting center. He was a four-star, number 53 overall recruit in the class of 2017. So they need some answers. They're going to be really young at one of the guard spots, I think. If you, if you could reasonably think that uh, Brandon Bowen, as a veteran, could work in somewhere, either at guard or tackle, that still means Munford at left tackle as a junior, Davis and Myers as first-year starters uh, on the interior, Nicholas Petit-Frere maybe as a first-year starter in his second year. Um, they're really young, but when you when you think about where these guys were in recruiting, and again, Nicholas Petit-Frere was a huge get when they got him late in the year, and Greg Schiano had a big part of getting him out of Florida. He went to the same high school as Greg Schiano's sons down there, and Greg Schiano knew him forever, so that's a goodbye present um, from Greg Schiano. Like, are, are you enthused, curious about this offensive line, Stephen? Or do you think legitimately, like, they lost four starters, they got a lot of young dudes, a lot is up in the air. Do you think that's a spot that fans should be worried about? I think the first couple of weeks is going to look iffy just because of the fact that they don't, like you said, they lost four starters, and so, like, guys are going to have to figure it out. So the first two weeks, it may look a little iffy. But I think the thing that worries me more is just the depth there. Like, what if somebody gets hurt? What if two guys get hurt? Like, they they need offensive line, like, just bodies in general. And I think – and that's why you see in 2020, they, they, they've already added two – they've got the, a five-star guy in Paris Johnson coming in. They added Luke Wiper as well. But, like, they need – I think what I'm more worried about is just the depth at the position more than I am just, like, the ability of some of these guys, to be honest with you. Their best years – I'm trying to remember a stat. It was a stat a couple years ago. I think it was when Brandon Bowen got hurt and broke his leg um, in the middle of the 2016 season. I think that was Urban Meyer's first serious offensive line injury, that they had been healthy in 2012, 13, 14, and 15. And you think about some of the great guys they had there, Taylor Decker, um, Jamarco Jones, Billy Price, Pat Elfline, um, some really outstanding offensive linemen, but they were on the field. And there was a year Michigan State really went south the one year in the midst of all these multi, all these uh, 10 win seasons they've had. I think the one year they were three and nine. They lost a lot of close games. I think they lost three starters or something like that on the offensive line. You get in to offensive line injuries, and if you're if you don't have depth, you can go off a cliff real quick. So I think you make a good point, Stephen. Again, they have. 11 scholarship offensive linemen on this roster at the moment. Um, and one of them that they're probably going to be counting on is Brandon Bowen coming back from injury. That You know, you never want to think about injuries, talk about injuries. I'm knocking on the wood, but just the idea that I, they, I think you're right, Stephen. I think they might be okay. They might look rough early, but I think they might be okay. But if they have like two injuries, they might be in a heap of trouble. Yeah, like it- – Depth is everything, and like like you, they've got a bunch of five star guys on the, as on the offensive line. But if they're not, if they're you know not on the field because of injuries, it really doesn't matter if they're a five star guy or not. And it, it's it's interesting that like Wyatt Davis, when they had an injury this year, Wyatt Davis was ready. They had been talking about uh-huh. Wyatt Davis. They wanted to get him action anyway, and then when he was. When it was time for him, he was ready. But they might end up starting the next Wyatt Davis at the start of the year. That you know, I think ideally. You know, they, they let Myers and, and Davis grow and mature for two years before they're now going to rely on them in 2019. I think with linemen, most of the time, that's the ideal scenario if the guy's not Orlando Pace. They are Munford. They needed it in his second year. They couldn't wait till his third year. But if they're going to rush maybe a couple second-year guys into the lineup, um, then instead of those guys being ready if something goes down, now all of a sudden you're talking about first-year guys being ready if something happens, and especially on the offensive line, that it really is not what you want. Um, this is an interesting question. I'm not sure we have a great answer to it, but I think it's an interesting thing to talk about from Michael Walter at Mikey MikeyDubs09. How much does weather affect a recruit coming to Ohio State? 
The best players are in the South. Why the heck would you want to go from sunny to rain and bitter cold weather? Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney wouldn't be doing what they're doing at a Big Ten program. So, like, of course, all the best players are in the South. And beyond the weather, it's, it's just easier to keep guys home. It's easier to keep guys where their parents can drive two hours and watch him play rather than drive six or eight or ten or twelve or have to fly to watch him play. It's not easy for J.K. Dobbins' family to watch him play. If J.K. Dobbins had gone to Texas, it would be much easier for them to watch him. So I think there's a, there's geographic stuff there beyond meteorological meteorological stuff there. But Stephen, like what you know, you you think like a seventeen year old recruit far more than I do. How much of a challenge do you think it is for Ohio State to come overcome weather with this stuff? But also, by the way, they like to get them here for the spring game. They like to get them here maybe early in the fall when it's not so bad. But do you think that's a real issue sometimes? I think it's, it's it can be a shock. Like if I'm a guy from Florida, you know, and I'm a you know, I'm a wide receiver from Florida, and I'm a four or five star guy, and I've really never seen snow. I've Cold weather to me is no. Let's use a perfect example for this. Chris Olave is from California. That man, cold to that man, his whole life has been anything under sixty degrees. So if it's fifty-five degrees, he's got a jacket on. He's probably rarely ever seen snow. This past winter, has I guarantee you, this last couple of days that he's been in Ohio where he's been seeing blizzards and the weather's been seven degrees and all types of mess. This is not even awful for him. And, like, there's no – I think the best way is for them to prepare for that. There's no real way to prepare for, like, seven-degree weather for any human being. I've lived in Ohio my entire life, and I'm still not really prepared for seven-degree weather. But I'll say I think the best thing that a player could say to a, a recruit if they ask, hey, what's the weather like? Wear a coat. We're going to win. Yeah. Listen, we're going to talk to people for national championship, but you're going to need a bigger coat than what you got on right now. I, the NFL is a strong motivator, and if you think you're getting to the league thanks to Ohio State, you can be cold for three years. So, <laughs> you know, they've had a history of doing that. Um, I will say, I mentioned this, I don't know if people read this, my third and short column that I, I put out every weekend uh, and is in the Plain Dealer every Sunday, um, it wasn't this past weekend, but it was two weeks ago, so like ten days ago. Um, or was it this past weekend? No, I guess it was this past weekend. Anyway, here's my point. I, I, I wrote about the Ohio against the world kind of idea as it relates to the Browns and the Cavs and Ohio State. And in a lot of ways, um, the teams that have stood up to the dynasties in recent years, whether it's the Buckeyes against Alabama and Clemson, whether it's the Cavs against the Warriors, and I said maybe it'll be the Browns against the Patriots next year, Ohio has has stood up to these dominant teams. And there, there was a point I made that relates to this. In the last 21 years of college football, every single national champion has been from basically below the border of uh, Virginia, below the border of Kentucky. There's like a line that basically cuts across the United States. It's kind of a straight line of state borders. Whatever you basically want to call the South, right? Whether it's... Um, USC or Texas or Clemson or Florida State or Miami or all the giant list of SEC teams, Bama and LSU and Auburn, 19 of the 21 years, in the past 21 years, the champ has been from the South or the Southwest or the Southern California, okay? The only two years it was a Northern team was Ohio State in 2002 and 2014. That's in the last 21 years. In the same 21 years previous to that, so now we're talking as long as 42 years ago, but this is a 21-year era. The previous 21-year era, there were 11 Northern National Champions, um, from Colorado to Washington to BYU to Michigan to Penn State to Notre Dame. So as this is related to a weather question, obviously the talent. there's more talent in the South. There's spring football in the South. There's a lot of things. There's a, demo a demographic population shift in this country towards the South. But if you're also wondering about Southern kids coming North, not many are doing it because the best teams in the country for two decades, the national championship teams, have been Southern teams. And Notre Dame and Michigan and Penn State and everybody where it's cold can't compete at the most elite level anymore. The only program that can, 
The Kings of the North have been Ohio State. They are the only program where it's cold that has managed to win a national title in the last two decades. So thank you for uh, asking a question that allowed me to talk about the thing I wrote. But like, that's not the last time you're going to hear us write about that because I think it's a really interesting point. And I'm not sure what's going to change it. Right, Notre Dame made a national title game and lost. Oregon was the team that lost to Ohio State in 2014. Some other cold weather teams or colder weather teams have been close, but it's much less frequent than it used to be. Nebraska, right? The whole Nebraska era, not anymore. <clears throat> so there's something. There's definitely something to that. Um, let's see another couple, and then we're going to switch to some hoops. Um, Peter Rudy at Mansfield U 2004 asked a simple question and. We're only going to go into this in a million times in the next couple weeks. How do you think the quarterback battle will play out? Um, do you think if they bring in a different transfer, um, which they're going to get a grad, a grad transfer, I can't imagine the grad transfer is going to be anybody that can truly compete, but do you think that grad transfer or Matthew Baldwin has a chance of winning over Justin Fields? Or, no. Stephen, do you think it's almost 100% that Justin Fields is the quarterback? The only way Justin Fields is not starting next year is if for some random reason – is he does not get the ability, the eligibility. He's not eligible to play, or if he somehow gets hurt, I'm going to knock on wood because I don't want to, you know, you know, I don't want to wish hurtness on anybody. But yeah, the only way he's not on the field is if he's not let, uh, eligibly able to play. But other than that, it's his job. Yeah, I can't imagine. Um, you know, I, 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 if he's healthy and he's eligible, I think it's him. Uh, you know, Matthew Baldwin, to, to ask Matthew Baldwin is, I mean, Matthew Baldwin has a lot of time to get himself ready to be an Ohio State quarterback. He certainly has at least another year that would be completely in a completely normal development cycle, maybe even two. Um, so I think I think that is, it would be amazing, amazing um, if anything other than Justin Fields was yeah. the quarterback. So. All right, um, you know what, we're, we're keeping it a little bit short. It's just kind of a weird week. I will say Tobias K. asked, Doug, will there be any new episodes of Takes by the Lake? It's one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, I'm going to try this week. I haven't done it in a long time. I just have a lot of moving parts. I would like to get back to it. So if you guys have been listening to Takes by the Lake and it hasn't been around for a couple months, I would like to do something on Freddie Kitchens this week. We'll see if we get to it. Um, but watch that channel. There's going to be some good stuff coming if not this week, in the near future on the Takes by the Lake feed. So um, we will get to that soon. Um, and we're acknowledging Chip Munn's question about the, the football staff. We sort of answered that already, how it compares to last year. And we're going to end the football talk here with Alan Kitchen. Uh, I'm most Oh, we have a couple on email I want to get to quickly, too. I'm most excited to see if the coaches coach with more of a sense of urgency this year, adjustments, personnel, etc. What are you guys most excited to watch with this new coaching staff? What is it? Is there somebody of the five new guys that, that particularly intrigues you at all, Stephen? Ooh. Um, I, you can think. I'll give my quick answer real quick. I'm excited yeah. to watch anybody other than Bill Davis coach linebackers. <laughs> so uh, I'm curious about Al Washington. I think he has a really good um, recruiting reputation. I think there are, if there are any questions, it's more about you know coaching technique and that kind of stuff. Um, I have. I imagine that he will certainly relate to the kids better than Bill Davis, who was an NFL veteran, did. So um, I think I'll be curious with Al Washington in recruiting linebackers in the future, uh, relating to college linebackers and not NFL linebackers, and also figuring out the best guys to play and how to. Are you going to rotate? Are you only going to play three? But getting the best guys on the field at their best positions, and I think you could look back. Uh, maybe the last couple of years with Bill Davis and question that as well. So that's my answer on that. What's yours? I think the easy one is Mike Yersich, but I'm going to go with Jeff Halfley, and I'm going to go with him simply because of the reason. One of the things that – one of your biggest issues with Bill Davis was the fact that he should have never left the NFL. He was a guy who was a decent NFL coach who came into the college level and never really coached at the college level and didn't do a great job. And I think Halfley has spent the last three seasons with the 49ers. I think he spent the last seven seasons in the NFL in general. So it's going to be, I'm interested to see how that can, he can, you know, bring that down to, you know, the college level. He did coach Mr. Zerman at, with the 49ers, who's, who's been one of the better DBs in the, in the league for a while. But I want to see how he can translate the NFL level down to the college level now that he's actually coaching at this level. 
And I'm always curious about NFL guys now, Stephen. Having seen Shiano and Bill Davis, the problem with Bill Davis was he was an NFL guy through and through who had never coached in college. Ryan Day had been in the NFL, but he had also been in college before that. Halfley is a guy who's been in the NFL, but he was in college before that for a while. He was at Rutgers with Shiano, then followed him to the NFL. So I do think there's a big difference when you have a guy who, who clearly is comfortable in college but made a jump to the NFL and is now coming back as opposed to a guy who's an NFL lifer. So I think that's a good answer um, on Halfley because I, 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 I think they've been missing something in the defensive backfield, and I'll be very curious if he's a guy with technique and energy and that kind of thing that can get it back. A couple more questions. We haven't gone to the email account lately. It's um, a Gmail account, Pod at Gmail. We apologize if we don't get to those as often, um, but we certainly appreciate all the questions you guys send on email, and we do check them. Andrew Patterson, simply put, did Keandre Jones get screwed at Ohio State? He did everything right, killed it on special teams, never really got injured, and couldn't even get a sniff of real playing time, even when our linebackers were playing awful. Also, isn't that the difference between Ohio State and Alabama? The big-name recruits at Bama are always the next up. Jones was a top 100 recruit, and Pete Werner was a top 400 recruit, and James Jones never even gets a real chance while Pete starts every game. I would bet 100 bucks if Saban was the coach, Keandre Jones would at least get a few starts to let him prove himself. So we're not there watching spring practice. I think Keandre Jones had a shot. Uh, I talked to Keandre Jones after the bowl game, after the win over USC, about, like, you're next, you're up, this is your time. Again, he did a lot of, like, what exactly what Dante Booker did, which is you you wait for two years, you're a huge recruit, you're a top 100 recruit, you're behind good guys, you wait for two years, you play special teams, and you expect to start as a junior. And then he didn't win the job. And so, you know, I, I don't know. I think normally you, you would say, you know what, like, you got to trust the coaches. They watch practice, except it was Bill Davis. And so I think it's reasonable to question, did he put the wrong guys on the field? And that's not a slight at Pete Werner, but I think it is a question about guys like Keandre Jones and Dante Booker who just didn't seem to get a shot. Um, and Baron Browning was didn't get much of a shot late in the year um, after he was hurt. And they stuck with the same guys at a position where they'd had a little bit of success rotating guys a little bit. Booker got a couple series late in the year, but not that much. So... I think it's interesting with Keandre Jones. He is a huge team first guy. He's a special teams guy. But but what do you think it is, Stephen? Keandre Jones was the guy from Maryland who committed with Dwayne Haskins. He was he was rated practically as high as Dwayne Haskins was, and you see their careers diverge. That happens all the time. But when you see a guy like Keandre Jones who never he never started, now he's in the transfer portal. Um, do you at least question that at all? Why this guy didn't see the field more when he had been so highly rated? Yeah, like four and five star guys. Obviously, you just kind of went through what what the process is. Where two years from now, from the moment they can, they step on campus, they usually see the field. I think it's always interesting when you got a guy who's that talented and you're trying to figure out what didn't click. And you know, we can say Bill Davis maybe didn't have the right guys on the field, or maybe he had the right guys on the field. Who knows, Bill Davis? I just know. I think when you're a four or five star guy, especially in football, where like four or five star guy, that's a gold mine for you. Something didn't click, and I just think it didn't click at Ohio State that he didn't see the field. So I think that's the more – that's the question. Obviously, we can't answer it because we're not in practice with them, watching them practice on a day-to-day basis. But something didn't click, and that would be like an interesting thing to find out. But what didn't click on why this man never saw the field on a consistent basis? And, and again, I mean, there's always – part of it's on the player. You have to be responsible for your own progress. But I do think sometimes um, – it, 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 a coach may not coach you right. You know, you might not have the right coach to get the most out of you. And so um, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of things you can go back. And this isn't a bash Bill Davis podcast because that's what it was for the past two years. It's now going to be bash somebody else. But I think it's reasonable to go back and look at this and question some of those decisions and hope some of them, you know, some good decisions are made going forward because I don't. You know, I just there, there, Bill Davis never gave you much of a reason to to believe in him, and I think we see now that Ohio State didn't believe in him, and you just don't know who he may have screwed up along the way, who he may have somehow managed to to affect their career in a negative fashion, not on purpose, but just by being a guy who didn't get the right guys on the field, didn't get the most out of some guys, and I think that's always going to be a lingering thing. And I'll, I'll tell you, I almost, I not almost, I do. 
Guys who came here thinking they were going to play for Luke Fickle and wound up playing for Bill Davis for two years, I feel bad for those Ohio State linebackers because I think Luke Fickle was a really good position coach. I think Bill Davis was a really not good position coach at the college level, and I think there are some linebackers in that room who suffered as a result for the past two years. Uh, Steve Hostetter says, thanks, big fan of the podcast. I listen to most Buckeye podcasts, and I find yours to be informative and entertaining. So thank you to Steve Hostetter for that. He, he is talking about the transfer rule, and we touched on it a little bit last week, but I think it's worth touching on again. He says, I'm scared to death of the transfer rule being more lenient and allowing immediate eligibility. I enjoy following an athlete being recruited from high school, being a backup, then a starter, then graduating and going on to the pros. That's why it hurts to see Tate Martell leave when I've been following him for three years. So it's just this, this nervousness about what happens if guys, you know, you didn't get enough playing time all of a sudden. Someone says, hey, you want to transfer? You're in the transfer portal. You go, you're gone, and you can play right away. I think this Tate Martell eligibility thing at Miami is going to be really interesting, Stephen, because he said he's going to make a case about a coaching change, whatever, but d- d- could you imagine? Like, Do you understand that feeling, I guess? We talked about it some last week, but from a fan, the idea of you get attached to these guys, and then if they can go at the drop of a hat, would you understand why that might be tough for fans? Oh yeah, I would. I understand why. Like it, it would be like something that you that wouldn't sit well with you as a fan, especially when we all know the reason why any that player, regardless if it's Tate Martell or Bob Burgers, I don't know why I said Bob Burgers, but we're gonna roll with it. it when the reason that a guy is leaving is simply because he's not playing, I think that's always that's never gonna sit well with you because that's not a real. That's you know. You didn't win the job. You know, you're not, obviously you're not playing well enough that coaches feel like you need to be on the field. And so that's never going to sit right. And it's always going to come off as, oh, this guy is just a quitter because he decided he wanted to transfer just because he wasn't playing. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you have to balance. The athletes come first. The athletes come first before the fans. They're the ones putting their bodies and the brains on the, on the line. Right. Um, but I understand the fear of free agency. Listen, People have a fear of free agency in the pros. People, you know, people don't like it when there's trades in the NBA and all of a sudden, you know, you rooted for Kyrie Irving and now he's gone. So I, I understand that. Um, I think there's, I think they can reach a solution at the college level. And I talked to them about it last week. The idea that you know, um, you can't in the pros. You're just you're not a free agent every single year. You sign a contract. So I do think. There are ways, as we continue to see amateurism evolve, I think there's a way where they can find a middle ground that is satisfactory and fair to the players um, and their freedom and their very limited chance to capitalize on their opportunity to play, but also understanding that absolute, complete free agency at the college level probably is not the best thing for the game. Um, So we'll have to see. Maria Buoni, Buoni. B-U-O-I-O-N-I. B-U-O-N-I. Bioni. Bioni. I should be able to pronounce that better. It's a beautiful name. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Doug and Steven, I'm a big fan of the podcast. We appreciate it. Thanks for all your commentary and insights. Man, I just watched the identity theft of Mitch Mustaine about the rise and fall of Gus Malzahn's high school players in his brief time at Arkansas before he moved to Tulsa. It brought to mind your recent discussions of hardship waivers for players like Tate in particular and the impact of a coach's presence on the success of a player. If you compare Tate to someone like Mitch Mustaine, both were highly touted, signed to play in a college system that quickly changes. It's easy to see how much a kid can be negatively, negatively affected and lost in the midst of that change. Now, this isn't necessarily the case behind every QB transfer, but for the ones who were brought in to play a particular style, it's absolutely a hardship when that style is no longer present. Mitch Mustaine is one example. I'd say Tate is another. Can you think of any other quarterbacks who have dealt with the coaching and offensive philosophy change at their peak like this and that have navigated it successfully? Let me try to think on that while I spin it this way to you, Stephen. Would there would would you be in favor of like an exception for quarterbacks? Because I mean, I guess it can be too. Like, you know, when Paul Johnson went to Georgia Tech and turned Georgia Tech into triple option football. If you were a lineman there or a receiver there, you certainly were affected by that change in offense, right? You didn't sign up for that. Um, But the greatest change really is when you change an offensive philosophy as it relates to the quarterback. For the most part, you know, blocking's blocking, catching's catching, running's running. But if you're a quarterback with a certain style, that's why quarterbacks are divided up into sort of pro-style quarterbacks and dual-threat quarterbacks because offenses are different. 
when it comes to being able to transfer, would it make sense to have a quarterback loophole that would that would be affected by this, that maybe it's harder for other guys to transfer, but because a quarterback's future is so dependent on the system, they should get more leniency? Mm. I think that's the easy way to do it, and it makes a lot of sense until, like, I'm a wide, but I'm thinking, what if I'm not a quarterback? And, like, let's just use the Georgia Tech example again. When they switch to triple option, well, you're not throwing the ball at all, like, whatsoever, which means that if you're a wide receiver, you're doing a lot of blocking and a lot of blocking, and then they're throwing the ball once every blue moon just to, you know, for the sake of a big play or whatnot. And so you're getting maybe 15 catches and, like, maybe, you know, 20 targets if if you're that good of a wide receiver. So if, you're a, if I'm a wide receiver and I was there – before Georgia Tech went to the triple option, and I'm used to, you know, getting this many targets, and all of a sudden we switch, you know, the way we play, and now all I'm doing is blocking. That affects me as well. So I think that makes a lot of sense, especially with because, like, there's so many – there's two different styles of quarterback. But I think the way it can come off is, you know, it's special treatment for this one position just because it's only one of those guys who can be on the field at a time. Let me give this example of a guy who maybe navigated it. And it's not just the guy, but the coach navigated it with him. Denard Robinson was a Rich Rodriguez quarterback at Michigan. In Rich Rodriguez's final year, Denard Robinson threw for 2,570 yards, and he ran for 1,702 yards. That is an unbelievably huge year. That's 4,200 combined yards. That's a big year. Brady Hoke comes in the next year. Brady Hoke doesn't really run that Rich Rodriguez spread. Um, it's not He's not as dedicated to it, that's for sure. But yet, over the next two years, in 2011, when Michigan was 11-2 and two and really good and went to the Sugar Bowl, Denard Robinson, playing for Brady Hoke, his passing yards went from 2,500 to 2,100. His rushing yards went from 1,700 to basically 1,200. It was a little bit of a drop-off, but what Brady Hoke did was make his system fit the player, even if it's not what Brady Hoke necessarily yeah. wanted to do. So I do think a lot of this, the smartest coaches, even if you have a system, you fit the player the way Ohio State fit Dwayne Haskins this year the best they could. You take advantage of the talent you have. Um, and if you know what, if Justin Fields wasn't available, if there wasn't a five-star on the transfer market who wanted to come to Ohio State, I think Ryan Day would have fit this offense to Tate Martell. Who do you think, let me just, so I think if, 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 if you're asking for examples, I think, I mean, that's just one off the top of my head. I'm sure there are others out there. Yes, there are examples where it didn't work, where the system change really screwed people up, screwed a quarterback up. But I think the very best coaches find a way to take advantage of their talent. But let me ask you this, Stephen. If Justin Fields didn't exist, what would Ohio State and Ryan Day have done at quarterback? What do you think? Would they have looked for the next best Justin Fields example? Or was Justin Fields a, a one-time shooting star, five-star guy who was out there, and otherwise Ryan Day would have been, whether he was happy to or not, would have been willing to go into spring football and let Tate Martell and Matthew Baldwin fight it out? Yeah, I think Justin Fields just happened. You know, that that couldn't have – it happened at the perfect time that it needed to happen – your quarterback had a year where you it's clear he's not coming back here next year. And so the discussion is, oh, there's going to be a competition. And there would have been a genuine competition between Tate Martell and Matthew Baldwin where either one of them, I think, could have come out of there the winner of that. But you know, Tate Martell wouldn't be in Miami right now. He would have possibly transferred to Miami in June, after, depending on the decision that was made based off of what happened in the spring. So I think – yeah. Justin Fields just happened. That's not a realistic way of looking at how this could have worked out for Ryan Day. I think the more realistic way was he was going to have a genuine QB competition in the spring. And depending on that, how that competition went, Tate Martell would be here in Miami. And I think Tate Martell would have beaten out Matthew Baldwin. And I think he would have just fitted to Tate Martell. But in the first year, he would have fitted it to Tate Martell. But going on into the future, he would have got guys who fit his system better. But in the first in his first year as a coach, yeah, I think he'd have just submitted to Tate Martell, which wouldn't have been hard. Because it's not like he's never ran a offense that's like designed like to you know favor a run first quarterback. He did it in his first year as the offensive coordinator at Ohio State. 
I will say there was a story um, that I wanted to do all year, and I never got to it with the way this Ohio State season went. But Urban Meyer, his last year at Florida in 2010, which was kind of a weird year. It was after he retired for a day and unretired. He had a drop-back passer in John Brantley, um, and they tried to adjust the offense a little bit. They, they used some, some uh, tight ends at quarterback, um, Trey Burton, and... Uh, Who's the guy with the Redskins? Vernon Reed? Was he the other one? But they had a couple guys that they put in at quarterback and short yardage. It was a weird year, probably Urban Meyer's weirdest year as a coach at Florida. They weren't that good, and John Brantley as a dropback quarterback didn't have that good of a year. Um, and so I thought that was hanging over this season. If, if all the stuff hadn't happened with Urban Meyer, I would have written that before this season. This is what happened the one time in his career Urban Meyer really tried to play a dropback quarterback. And then guess what? It went great. Like, they had some bumps in the road with Dwayne Haskins figuring it out. Um, but Dwayne Haskins set every record in the book. Dwayne Haskins set himself up to be a first-round draft pick. Ohio State finished number three in the nation, and it worked. So um, the past is a great thing to look at when you're trying to see what the future is going to do. But these coaches do learn from their mistakes. Um, and, and I think Ryan Day would have found a way. And the main thing, Stephen, is I agree with you. I think a lot of people were guessing that Matthew Baldwin, as more of a, quote, Ryan Day quarterback, had a very good chance to beat out Tate Martell. I still think Tate Martell would have won the job and Ryan Day would have found a way to make it work. We're going to hit scholarship questions real quick. Brian Ford on, um, on the Gmail account. Love the show, fellas. What's going on with Brian Sneed? Now, this is an old question from almost a week ago from Brian, and we now have an answer to this, but let's talk about this. What's going on with Brian Sneed? He was highly touted, obviously had some issues, and it's been mum for some time. Can we count on him and Scarlett and Gray moving forward? We, we obviously, uh, Brian knows this answer by now. You guys all do know. You can't count on him. He's no longer on the roster. And James Bossmeyer asked, how concerned should we be that we only have one scholarship quarterback? Uh, they, they do have three. They have... Matthew Baldwin, Justin Fields, and then Chris Chuganoff, uh, the transfer from West Virginia, who's still here. They'd like to get to more, but I want to just point out that on our scholarship tracker, the Ohio State, you can Google Ohio State football scholarship chart 2019. We now have them at 83 scholarships right now. If you still count C.J. Saunders, the former walk-on receiver who got a scholarship, who I think can be back for a fifth year, but I'm still not sure about, he would make it 84. So they're either at 83 or 84. That's with Tate Martell gone. That's with Brian Sneed gone. Um, as we're thinking about, we know signing day is coming in the first week of February, Stephen. Like, are you, do you think, if, if let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say they're at 83, which means they could sign two guys, or maybe they could sign three guys and expect one more transfer, do you think they're in a pretty good spot? With their roster, or do you think they'd be better off if they were more like 81 guys and could add four or five more guys in this late signing period? What do you think overall of them being at either 83 or 84 scholarships right now? Personally, I think 83, I, I think 82 personally would be like a perfect number, but I'm not mad at 83. And the only reason why is that I would rather see maybe an 82 is just simply because you've still got a commit who hasn't, you know, signed yet in Doug Nestor who just came on a second visit um a couple of days ago but I think that's where the worry is right there whether or not you know he's still going to he's still committed here but he hasn't he was literally the only guy committed to Ohio State in the 2019 class who did not sign during the early signing period and I think that's what's throwing this off a little bit because you, it's, you know he came on another visit but it's still kind of the jury's kind of out of what he's going to do with his decision along with the fact that they want four quarterbacks on the roster at all times so I think 82 would be perfect because then it gives you room if if things still go as planned and Doug Nesser you know, signs, and then you, you get another, you go find probably a grad transfer as your fourth quarterback, and then it still gives you an extra spot for to bring in at least one more guy. Just to your point, Stephen, that 83 number that we have them at, that still includes Keandre Jones, who is looking at transfer options. And so if right. he transfers, that gets him down to 82. So yeah. um, they, they might end up in the right range, and again, I don't, we don't like to, to throw out names for transfers, but if you go look at our scholarship chart, again, Google Ohio State Football Scholarship Chart 2019, you can look at that chart and come up with a couple other guys that maybe could be transfer possibilities. And I want to acknowledge that Bill Feeman 
on Gmail asked a question about what are the scholarship numbers um, after the Tate Martell transfer. Let me get one more football question. We'll get to, to basketball. And this is good news for everybody. CJ Straub with the question, will Justin Fields be a Buckeye more than one year? His headline is Justin Fields one and done question mark. And the answer I can say authoritatively, CJ, is he will be a Buckeye for more than one year because he has to be. Because he, he was only at Georgia for one year. This is only going to be his second year in college football. Assuming he gets this immediate eligibility, he's going to come in here as a sophomore, a true sophomore, and he cannot leave after next year. So he cannot be one and done, at least in terms of the NFL. And for everybody who um, was sad to see Dwayne Haskins break every record in the book and then leave after one year as a starter, if this works with Justin Fields and he's good in 2019, he'll be back in 2020. So I think everybody can grab onto that. People have asked. We, we wish we could get to more questions. We're going to keep it a little tighter this week. Um, we'll get back to a longer podcast as we get ready to preview signing day um, in the weeks ahead. But we're keeping it tight. And, and Stephen, we're, we're doing this late on Wednesday night. The Ohio State Buckeye basketball team has now lost five straight. We had some people asking about when are we going to do a basketball podcast. We're going to start getting into more basketball. How worried should Ohio State fans be right now about this basketball team? Very worried. There is. I tweeted this out like a week ago, just like as a filler. Ohio State might go the entire month of January and go 0-7 this month, January. I think of the three games they had left, they play Nebraska on Saturday, and then they'll travel to Michigan. They'll travel to Ann Arbor on Tuesday to play the Michigan, who's currently ranked fifth in the country right now and has one loss, and at one point was as high as number two in the country. Chris Holman warned us all season long that January was going to come around and they were going to find out exactly how good this team is. And right now, they don't look very good. I don't. This was the game tonight against Purdue. It's Thursday now. It's 12.03 in the morning. But when, so by the time you guys hit Wednesday night against Purdue was a game I think that was a must win for them. Andre Wesson even said this after the game that they needed to win this game. When you lost four games, you get desperate, yada, yada, yada. But they needed to win this game tonight to end that streak. I think the tournament looks are getting really, really doubtful at this point right now. Uh, both CBS Sports and ESPN and their bracketology have them at 10, which is usually the lowest you get to when you're talking about Power 5 teams who are at-large bids. Right now, they might be on the outside looking in when it comes to the NCAA tournament. They are 2-5 and five in 11th place in the Big Ten, five and a half games behind undefeated in the conference Michigan State at 8-0. There are some really good teams ahead of them. Michigan State 8-0, Michigan 7-1, Maryland 7-2. If you had to guess right now, Stephen, are they going to make the tournament or not? Based on what you've seen and what you think they'll do the rest of the year, are you expecting them to to win enough games to get in the tournament? As of right now, no. And I'm going to write a story that should be up in the morning about some things that they're going to need to accomplish to be able to rack up a – pretty much like – wrap up a tournament seed before the Big Ten tournament starts. But at this point right now, no, I don't think this is a tournament team. I think the only way, the route they're going right now, the only way they get to the tournament is if for some random reason they get hot in Chicago and end up winning the Big Ten tournament. But other than that, no, I don't think this team is a tournament team right now. 12-6 and six overall on a five-game losing streak. Last year they defied all the expectations uh, and finished second in the Big Ten. Well, it, say this season really goes south, right? They're two and five. Say they finish six and twelve uh, in the Big Ten, which certainly would not be impossible. Um, that would make them like sixteen and thirteen overall, or something like. Like, is that is that a failure, or is that a reasonable? Second year for Chris Holtman after a very surprising first year with a young team, without Kata Bates-Diop, without Jay Sean Tate. Would this be, you know what, like no reason for fans to be worried. There's a lot to build on for the future. Or would this raise your eyebrows a little bit if they wind up with, with something like a, a 6-12 and or 7-11 and Big Ten record? I think this is the rebuild year. I think last year he had a great combination of a group of seniors who did not want to, you know, leave Ohio State with a tear with on a bad note, and 
that combination of that type of leadership mixed with you had a guy on your roster who was a Mr. Basketball in, Ohio, in the state of Ohio. All that combined led to them having the season they have. Chris Goldman. Chris Goldman's a great coach. This is just a very young team who's just kind of some mixed match parts as you are kind of Waiting. This is a transition year where Chris Holman is starting to get a couple of his guys in, and next year he'll bring in three guys in his class who come who combined are a top ten class in the country, and we'll find out tomorrow. But one of them might be one or two of them might be McDonald's All Americans. We'll find out tomorrow at three o'clock when those rosters get released. But I think this year is is, is just a weird year. You you. If, if, I've said this a couple of times to some of the other guys on the beat, but I think right now they got two point guards on their rosters who are backup point guards when it comes to the talent level and they've got one guy who's a who i think is a starting caliber point guard but he's a transfer this year so he's sitting out this year and he'll be eligible to play next year and one of them is, will be an incoming freshman next year and dj Carden, who i think is going to end up being the starting point guard next year but this team just isn't talented enough mixed with the guys who maybe are talented they're just young right now so that combination is leading to what we're seeing right now where Earlier in the season, some of the mistakes they were making, they were able to overcome just simply because they weren't playing the type of talent they're playing now, playing the best conference in the country. Um, I want to send out uh, an advisory to anybody listening to this podcast. If you don't know, Columbus is hosting one of the uh, first-round sites this year. So if Ohio State, especially if Ohio State doesn't make the tournament, you, you may want to go to Columbus to watch these first-round games. Uh, my daughter is a big basketball fan, and I went to buy us tickets uh, for the Columbus site. It's a Friday-Sunday site. Uh, also a Friday-Sunday site on the NCAA.com um, ticket site is Columbia, South Carolina. They do not put the state abbreviations next to the cities. And so as we sit here right now, my daughter and I have tickets to watch the Friday and Sunday games in Columbia, South Carolina, Thanks to her father being blind uh, and stupid, um, and I have to call Ticketmaster and get that fixed. So they're right on top of each other. There's no state abbreviations. They're the same days. So don't be like me. I hope I can't imagine I'm the only person in America that bought tickets for the wrong site when they stack Columbia and Columbus and don't put the states. But don't be like me. So I'm warning people um, of my mistakes. That's the best thing about this podcast. Food talk, football talk, basketball talk, but learn from Doug's mistakes should also be a theme that you take away from this. Five-star reviews are pouring in. We're never going to be an overall five-star again. It's just Stop it's saying a, that, man. It's you got to have some like confidence, positive thoughts into the world. It's just math, man. I mean, it's like every every low one just kills us, and you have to get 95 stars to make up for it. 771 total ratings on iTunes so far. Of those 771, 694 are five stars. That's a pretty good ratio. 18 four-stars, 12 three-stars, 15 two-stars, 32 one-stars. But I want to shout out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The last eight reviews, and you can leave a, a rating without doing a review. The last eight reviews dating back to January 12th are all five-stars. So thank you to Thomas McCormick, Sing Buck, Revens50, Dr. Shrimp Puerto Rico, Die Soft Buckeye, Buckeye Nick 12, Sam S. 1114114, and Adam Gottmuller. Thank you to you guys for your five star ratings and five star reviews. Um, we certainly appreciate that. We're, we normally go two hours, we're going one tonight. Um, Steven's got basketball covered. We're going to have more football stuff coming. I still have football stuff backlogged that I need to get to, but I'm off doing something else at the moment right now. You guys will see that when that comes out. Uh, but for now, Steven, is there anything that you wanted to hit on real quick before we get out of here? Uh, pay attention to that Nebraska game on Saturday. I think they may be able to win that game, but it's doubtful. But that's about it. So I hope everybody you know, was warm this weekend in the tundra that was Ohio. <laughs> Yes, I think if Steven, Steven, if if you were currently a football recruit, I think you might be one of those Ohio guys who was looking hard at uh, Miami or USC or Hawaii. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Brother, I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't understand why Hawaii is not good, is not better at football. Simply because if like it's like, dude, it's it's you're living in a paradise. And so here's what we mean about Pitts, guys. If I'm like the number one like quarterback in the country. 
And, like, all these guys, like, mess around on Twitter now because they all kind of know each other because all these camps and combines they go to, which get them these rankings. So they all talk to each other. I would literally go, hey, guys, let's all go to Hawaii. Think about it. We can live in paradise and we can compete for a national championship. What better way to play college football? I will say maybe the smartest, one of the smartest decisions by anybody that I've covered. Taylor Graham was a backup quarterback at Ohio State. His dad was Kent Graham who played quarterback at Ohio State. Um, when Urban Meyer got here, Taylor Graham had been recruited by Jim Tressel, was more of a Jim Tressel-style quarterback, and Taylor Graham transferred to Hawaii. And then when, when Hawaii came back, Hawaii played Ohio State, and Taylor yep. Graham got to play for Hawaii in Ohio Stadium. And the only thing I remember about that is I was mad. Why is Ohio State playing Hawaii, but they're playing it in Columbus? How are yeah, they not doing good. this in Hawaii? At least that get the beat writers there. Horrible. That um, should have been a home and home. Like, seriously. Yes. Why not? Exactly. So we'll work on that. We'll see if we can get Gene Smith to work on that. All right. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. You can email us at Stephen underscore means at Buckeye Talk Pod at Douglas Maurice. Email us at Buckeye Talk Pod at Gmail. Um, we might go some shorter ones in the offseason. Listen, there's just not as quite as much going on. But um, we will say that signing days here the first week in February – Spring football is going to start in early March. The spring game is April 13th. That has been announced. If you guys want to get on that, the spring game is, I've written it, I've said it a million times, uh, it is expensive to go to Ohio State football games. It is hard to get Ohio State football tickets for the really good opponents. If you are an Ohio State football fan who's never been to an Ohio State football game, especially if you're a parent of a kid who enjoys Ohio State football, take them to the spring game. You're in the stadium. You're in the seats, you're in the concession line, and everybody on the field's a Buckeye. It's not a real game, but I'll tell you what. If I was a person who had a chance to go to only the spring game or the like, the Miami of Ohio game, I might pick the spring game because usually the weather's nice and it's all Buckeyes. And you know Ohio State's going to beat somebody 50 to nothing. That's not that exciting. So go watch this quarterback competition. Go watch Justin Fields. I normally don't pump up Ohio State. I'm not here to sell their tickets. But I'm doing this as a service to fans. That $5 spring game, I'm assuming it'll be 5 bucks again, is about as the, the best 5 bucks you can spend in sports to get you and your kid in Ohio Stadium. I highly recommend it. So, Stephen on basketball. Me catching up on football. Both of us covering all the news, breaking and coming along um, with more football stuff. We always appreciate you guys listening. Read us at cleveland.com slash OSU. But for now, for Stephen Means on the phone, for me in a hotel room, I'm Doug Maurice. Thanks so much for listening. That was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>